I'd invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. We've been singing much today of the longing for Christ to come, the longing for the Messiah that was present in Israel as they awaited their King. And we find as we turn to the New Testament that all of Scripture is about Christ. Jesus said that the prophets, the writings, the law, it was all pointing to Him. It was all about Him. And it's all fulfilled in Him. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12 that the prophets were writing of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. And so as we think particularly about in this, at this time of year about the coming of Christ, the incarnation, it's a joy to be able to look into our Scriptures in the Old Testament and see the prophecies and the promises, the anticipation that was being built for the coming of the Lord Jesus that was fulfilled in its entirety when Christ came to earth to deliver his people from their sin in the fullness of time. And it's remarkable, is it not, that in accounts where the apostles were preaching Christ and teaching people about Christ, for instance, in Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus and for two years, every day he went to a rented hall and taught the Scriptures, and taught of Christ from the Scriptures. And what Scriptures were, were, was he using? Well, he was using the Old Testament. And he was teaching that Christ was the fulfillment of all the promises, of all that was anticipated. And so it is with joy this morning that we look at an Old Testament passage that proclaims an anticipation of Christ. And Lord willing, as The Lord would tarry and gather us back next week on Christmas Sunday. We'll look at a New Testament passage and the glorious fulfillment of all that Christ has accomplished as He came, as He took on flesh. He took on what He did not have in His eternal existence, but He took on flesh that He might die for sin to deliver us from the devil who has held us in the fear of death. We have a glorious salvation in Christ our Redeemer. But this morning we're in Isaiah 59, and Isaiah 59 starts out with a very sobering declaration. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Man is in a desperate situation. We need salvation. We need salvation from our sin. We need salvation from what separates us from God. And in this declaration at the beginning of this chapter, as Isaiah is preaching and declaring the word of the Lord, a question is raised, what what is it that prevents salvation? Because Israel has been indicted, as we'll see, they've been indicted for, for doing a lot of religious things but only exponentially increasing their guilt. They've done fasting. They've made sacrifices. They keep certain religious holidays religiously. And yet, God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. What is it that is preventing salvation? They're doing all of these things, and yet God is indicting them and declaring that their iniquities have made a separation between them and their God. And what we see early on in this chapter 
The answer is it's not inability from God. God is able to save. The Lord's hand is not shortened. He, he can extend His hand. He can save whom He will. It is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, it's not inability from God that prevents salvation, but verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. What prevents salvation? Not inability from God, but iniquity of man. That is our great problem. Our sin, our iniquity. Alec Motyer, commenting on this verse, states, sin alienates us personally from God. Personally, on a permanent basis. Sin alienates us personally from God personally on a permanent basis. That is a sobering reality. It's a sobering statement. Every human being born in Adam is born with the imputed guilt of Adam and under the just wrath of God for his sin deserving nothing but an eternal separation from the gracious presence of God. Sin alienates us personally. It's not just a general concept. It's that you personally are alienated personally from God. God is personally against those who are filled with iniquity. God is personally against those who are sinners and rebels against him on a permanent basis. That's our standing in and of ourself. That is our standing before God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The God, the God who created you, the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, the God who has determined the number of your days, the God who has created you the way he intended to create you to the point where you can't even add a hair to your head. He doesn't hear. He's turned away. We're told very clearly that it's not a matter that God does not possess power, but no ability to hear. In other words, God does have power, and people will often say, well, God, God has power, but he can't hear. That's not what he's saying here. This is not a statement that says that God possesses the ability to hear, but no power to act. No, God, God has the ability to hear, and God has the power to act. God is all-powerful and entirely able to hear. There is no fault in God. So what does it mean then when it says that there's a separation between you and your God and that he has hidden his face so that he does not hear. What the prophet is declaring is that God willfully and intentionally turns away from those who attempt to establish their own righteousness or walk in hypocrisy. Those are the people that he's talking to. He's talking to people who are attempting to establish their own righteousness and who are walking in hypocrisy before God. They've put up, they've put up a facade of righteousness. They've put up a, a facade of righteousness that is crumbling under the gaze of God. And what Isaiah 59 does, and it's so important that we recognize this as we delve into this passage and, and see our, our state before God, but then see the amazing work of salvation that God does, it's so important to understand that this chapter pulls back the veil on pristine religious practice, pristine religious practice but a pristine religious practice that is apart from saving faith. And if you go back to chapter 
58, we can see this. The, the whole section probably begins back in chapter 56, but we'll not take the time this morning to go through all of the material running up to chapter 59. But I, I simply want to substantiate this assertion that, that what we're going to look at in chapter 39 is pulling back the veil on pristine religious practice apart from saving faith. In Isaiah 58 and verse 1, the prophet cries out, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. All right, so what are these? Well, they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments and they delight to draw near to God. And now it quotes what they're saying in verse 3. Why have we fasted, God, and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves, God, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. You see what the prophet is saying? God is indicting His people for being a bunch of transgressors even though they say they delight in God. Even though they're trying to get God's attention, they're, they're raising the question, why have we fasted and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Are we seeing the, the buildup here, this, this pristine religious practice that, that is going unnoticed by God? And so when we come to chapter 59, God is answering that question. God, why are you not seeing what we're doing? Answer, because your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah is writing to an economically prosperous people. They're facing the dark clouds of threats to their security and they're trying to pursue a form of religion, a form of salvation, a form even maybe of reformation. They're looking to all kinds of different things for their salvation. That's what Isaiah addresses throughout his whole book. But, but the point that God is making over and over and over throughout this book is that these people, these people need a redeemer and not rituals. They need a redeemer. They need someone to purchase them from sin, to pay for their sins, not empty religious rituals. And so Isaiah's preaching is addressing the tendency of the human heart to put on religious garb, to put on fancy religious clothes, so to speak, but clothes that are just as helpful as the fig leaves were to Adam and Eve when they sinned against God to put on this religious garb while avoiding true repentance, while avoiding truly turning to God in repentance and faith. This is the tendency of the human heart. We, we want to put on our own righteousness, which later on Isaiah will say in verse 6, are like clothing yourselves with spider webs. That's picturesque. They're ineffective. It's ineffective. Sin must be dealt with through blood. Sin must be dealt with through a purchase. 
And God pictured this all the way back at the fall when Adam and Eve unsuccessfully tried to hide their shame and their nakedness with fig leaves. And man has been trying to do that ever since, trying to cover himself from his shame of sin before God. And God pictured the reality that anything we do to try to cover ourselves before God, anything we put on is, is completely worthless. Sin requires blood. Sin requires a purchase. Sin requires redemption. And that's why God in the garden clothed Adam and Eve in those animal skins pointing toward the necessity of a clothing from God, a clothing of righteousness that He alone would provide. Furthermore, when we think about acceptance before God, remember the problem here is that God is not hearing. There's separation between you and God. It's not only that we need We need our sins paid for. We do, desperately. But not only that we need our sins paid for, acceptance before God requires perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. A perfect life that perfectly corresponds to the character of God and to everything that He has revealed to be true in His law. It requires that you never covet anything from anyone ever. That you are never dissatisfied, that you are never grumbling, that that you are always perfectly satisfied in God, that God is your God and Him alone, that you have no other gods before Him. And it requires that perfect righteousness, not, not just God. acceptance before God requires perfect righteousness, not just by the things you do. In other words, I'm really glad that you've never killed anyone, but that's not acceptable before God. That's not enough. God's requirement is that you ought never be bitter against anyone. You can never be angry, sinfully angry against anyone. That's God's requirement of perfect righteousness. That's what it requires to come into the presence of God. And God is showing over and over and over again, mankind, you can't purchase your own redemption and you cannot find your perfect righteousness. It's impossible. Man cannot pay the price for redemption, and man cannot provide a perfect righteousness. And folks, this is, this is scriptural truth, that when we take the authority of God's Word and the authority of God's Word alone... It destroys the foundations of false religion that attempt to mix the sacrifice of Christ with the putting on or the addition of our own righteousness to add to sacrifice. This is the heart of the despicable abomination of Roman Catholicism. That, that nods to Jesus Christ, but says, Christ is not enough. I have to add my non-righteousness because that's what it is. That's not what they say. That's what it is. I have to add my non-righteous works. And to do that is to deny, is to deny the person of Jesus Christ. It is to deny salvation. It is to deny redemption. It is to say, we heard this morning in in the call to worship and in Dane's prayer that Christ is the one and only priest. He is the only one through through whom we have access to God. There is no other. 
And any man who sets himself up as a priest and says, you have to come to me to get to God, that man is a fool and a false teacher and under the damnation of God apart from God's merciful drawing of him to repentance. It's an abomination to take the place of Jesus Christ. No, it's only in Christ. It's only in Christ that we find redemption and righteousness, the, the, the two things that are necessary for us to be accepted in God. But what a privilege and joy it is to know that Christ has provided the sacrifice in and of himself, that he is the Redeemer, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him and Him alone will be saved and have eternal life. No, this is the great need. Every attempt to eradicate sin and tip the scales with man-made righteousness exponentially increases guilt. And how sad it is, how just how grieving it is. We, we live in, in a dark world where so many people are blinded. They're blinded by the lies that if they just do enough, they'll tip the scales in their favor. And instead, they're increasing their guilt before God. How desperately we need to proclaim the true, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ alone saves, and there is rest in him. Well, 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah preached a sermon. These prophets are great. You have pre-made sermons in the prophets. They're just preaching. They're preaching to the people. Isaiah preached a sermon indicting religious people for their sin. And I'm, I'm, I hope this is clear that this is being preached to religious people because what we're going to see is very disturbing. And we can think, well, I mean, that's really bad for people to live like that. And we, we think they're you know, just, just the, the bottom dwellers of society, the most heinous forms of sin, sin. No, this is to religious people. This is to people who are practicing a pristine religious rituals, but without saving faith. And so Isaiah is indicting a religious people for their sin and establishing the impossibility of securing righteousness and declaring that God himself would appoint a redeemer for those who repent. We've seen the declaration, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The theme that we're going to look at this morning from Isaiah 59 is that the Lord alone establishes salvation. The Lord alone establishes salvation. And in the first part of the chapter, point number one, point number one is that the Lord can save. The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. No, the Lord can save, but not based on man's righteousness. The Lord can save, but not based on man's righteousness. We see, first of all, the indictment against man that we've already read. Your iniquities, verse 2, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And in this indictment against man, the Lord is going to continue to flesh that out for us in the verses that follow. Look at verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. 
He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, just piles up statement after statement after statement of indictment against man for his sinfulness before God. Again, religious man, man who is practicing pristine religious rituals, and God says, this is what I see in you. I'm pulling back the veil. I'm pulling back the crumbling facade of your man-made righteousness. And this is what it looks like in my eyes, which are the only eyes that matter. This indictment is undoing. In verses 3 and 4 and verses 7 and 8, so if, if you think about 3 through 8, as having three sections, verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 8 are bookends that emphasize the reality in man apart from Christ, in man apart from Christ is corruption from head to toe. From head to toe. Your hands are defiled with blood. And the idea here, the the word that the prophet uses for hands is a a word. It's not just descriptive of a hand. It's descriptive of a a hand clutching something. The the picture is that your your hands have have participated in blood. And, And he goes even further into detail, your fingers with iniquity. You think about what our, what our fingers can do, the, the small, intricate tasks that they're able to accomplish. And, and God's indictment is that your, your fingers, your very fingers have been engrossed in, in sin at a very intimate level. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. What, what an affront to the God of truth. That your, that your lips are lying lips. And, and who can here say, I've never lied? <laughs> We're born liars. You, you don't teach children to lie. They're really good at it on their own. And God hates it. He's a God of truth. And it's wickedness before Him. You, you can't even enter verse 4. You can't even enter suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. <laughs> and your interactions, they're completely, they're completely tainted. They rely on empty pleas. They rely on nothingness. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. And then down in verse 7, your feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Your thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. From the way you think to the direction that you go in your life, Head to toe, complete corruption. And out of that corruption then, verses 5 and 6, they hatch adder's eggs. They weave spider's webs. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And their deeds of violence are in their hands. So if you go back to chapter 58 and think about their fasting and their humbling themselves and all of these religious rituals, what God's indictment is, no, those are all works of iniquity. Those are all an attempt to 
to find spiritual nourishment in poisonous reptiles. Those are an attempt to try to cover your shame and your nakedness before God because of your sin. And remember, before God, all things are open before him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It's like trying to put spiderweb clothes on. It's not going to work. You, when your life, when your whole character, when your whole existence is characterized by corruption from head to feet, then what you produce are works that are vicious. They're like poisonous snakes. They're vicious and they're futile. They're worthless. They're like trying to clothe yourself with spider's webs. That's the indictment of man. Anything you do is wicked because you are wicked. In your nature, you are wicked. It doesn't matter how many fasts. It doesn't matter what degrees you go to to humble yourself. If doing those works is what you're depending on, if those pristine religious rituals are the one thing that you're looking at to try to gain favor with God, it's futile. The prophet goes from the indictment against man as he's developing this point that the Lord cannot save or the Lord can save, but not based on man's righteousness. He's just undoing all of man's attempts to build up his own righteousness. And so he moves from the indictment against man. This, this is who you are. This is, this is what you do to the incapability of man. And here there's a little change in the language where man is actually acknowledging this. Look at verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like, a, like the blind, and we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The society is so corrupt that even those who try to do right become victims of evil. The incapability of man. What does incapability look like? Well, incapability looks like darkness. Darkness. We hope for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. Any attempts to establish salvation, any attempts to try to please God, it's walking in darkness. Proverbs 4.19 says the wicked walk in darkness and it's a darkness that closes in and they don't even know over what they stumble. <laughs> the spiritual darkness of attempting to to generate your own righteousness is, is so devastating that you don't even know you're in the darkness because of your nature. But this is why we have the Word of God. The Word of God comes as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and shines the light in and says, this is what you are. This is who you are apart from Christ. 
Paul's testimony of conversion in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, how was I converted? Well, it was like this. The light of the glory of God pierced my heart in the same way that God said, let there be light when he created the world. It was a work of creation from the word of God that pierced his heart and he saw the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and he was undone because he saw, he saw his darkness. He saw that all the religious things he did as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of a, a Jew of Jews, was nothing but off-scouring dung in the sight of God. But apart from that light, we walk in darkness. Verse 10, we grope, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Another description is directionless. When, when you're groping, you don't know where you're going. I'm trying to find my way out. I can't. And you're in echo chamber and, and you're groping along the wall, but it's a wall that continues to spiral down and down and down and down. And you don't even realize where you're going. You have, you have no sense of direction. It's like those, those sailors who, who testify that when a ship goes down and you become disoriented in the water, you, you don't know which way is up to the surface. And you grope. You grope in the darkness and stumble at noon when there should be full light. You're directionless. And verse 11 goes on to describe the incapability of man. Man in himself is in darkness. He's directionless and he's in despair. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. There, we hope for justice, but there is none and for salvation, but it is far from us. We're walking in darkness. We're, we're looking for salvation. Our hands are trying to feel our way out of our desperate condition. And, and we, we can't find it. And so there, there's an angst and an anger that causes us to roar like bears in our anguish and, and in despair like doves. We're moaning and moaning because we can't find our way out of the darkness. We can't find our way out of, out of the sinfulness of our own hearts. We can't find our way to justice and salvation and righteousness. We have nothing. And so we're in despair. And that's a self-assessment to this point. Man is starting to understand his darkness and, his, and the incapability of, of his own works to, to come out from, from, this, from this vortex of sinful living, from this vortex of violence and, and viciousness and futility, and it's getting worse and worse. And so in, chapter, in verse 12, then, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. We move from darkness to directionlessness to despair, and now to utter devastation. Why can't we find our way out? Why are we in despair? Why are we in anger and, and pulling our hair out and moaning? Well, because our transgressions are before you, God. We're undone before you. We've transgressed and we've denied the Lord. We've turned back from following God. In our pristine religious rituals, in our fasting, in our attempts to humble ourselves before you, but with the clothing of, of spider webs, with the hypocrisy of our heart, we are undone before you. And in verse 13, you could, you could look at this and say, this, this is an indictment against the people of Israel for breaking what Jesus said are the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And 
What do they see themselves before God? Well, we've denied the Lord. We speak oppression and revolt against those around us. We've broken the law of God. We're utterly undone. We are devastated. And so all of this then comes back in verses 14 and 15. If you notice verse 9, verse 9 says, Therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. Verse 14 and 15 close this section. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Because of the sinfulness of man and man's incapability to deliver himself and the spiraling downward into into an abyss of darkness apart from God, having broken his law as, as a chosen people of God set apart to keep his law, Psalm 105 records the deliverance of God's people and it ends with the statement that the people of God, the Israelites, they they were set apart and they were delivered to keep his law. And here, 700 years later, they're failing. They're failing. And in their lives, in their religious system, And in their whole society, in the unique society that they were in as God's chosen people, there's a complete void of moral substance. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. There's no truth. It's stumbled in the public square. Uprightness cannot enter. When we're talking about justice, when we're talking about righteousness, what are we talking about? We're talking about a conformity to the law of God. A conformity to what God has revealed in His Word to be true about us and about Him. And a pursuit, a pursuit of what God has revealed to be His will through the law that He's given. And that is expressed in a summary in the Ten Commandments. And what, what the confession here is in summary and in, in, in the reality of being devoid of moral substance, it, it's a confession, it's, it's the reality that, that there's been a complete dismissal of the law of God. While the, while the pristine religious rituals have been kept religiously at the heart, in man's mind and heart, they have completely turned away from the law of God. There is no substance. Man has lifted himself up in the place of God. He said, my truth is greater than God's truth. My tradition is greater than what God has said about ordering my life. And so, all of life and all of society is nothing but a lie. Truth is omitted. That's what verse 15 says. Truth is lacking. The idea is that truth has been omitted from your life to the point that there's a complete reversal of morality. Those that even try to do the right thing, they become prey. You think about our society. We, we have this perfectly illustrated, don't we? Try to take a stand for what God says His design of marriage is, which is the only design for marriage that there is, no matter what laws are passed, all of a sudden, you're prey. Why? Because truth has been omitted. 
But it's that same spirit that we have to guard against so carefully when we elevate our personal desires and our personal inclinations over what God has said in his word. What what we are experiencing in our society is simply is simply the symptoms of of people who have who have said subjectivity is greater than objectivity. You you can have whatever truth you want. Your truth is preeminent above the revealed truth of God's word. And that same spirit is it, all it is is the the extension of the fleshly unregenerate heart. And so we must carefully guard in our own hearts to not in any way move away from the revelation of God from his truth. It becomes a labyrinth of destruction. The Lord can save, but not based on man's righteousness. We've seen the indictment against man. We've seen the inability of man. The second part of verse 15 and into 16, we see the indignation of the Lord. What does God think about this? Well, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, or it was evil in his sight, that there was no justice. There's the facade but there's no real working out of salvation. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. God God looks at man. He looks at the attempts to establish righteousness out of darkness, out of desperation, out out of their turning away from his law. He sees it all. He sees right through the spiderweb clothing. You don't hide from God. He sees it, and the word there indicates he sees it with understanding. The indignation of God that's expressed here, that it displeased him and that there is no justice. The indignation of the Lord is based on his comprehensive observation. This is not just God arbitrarily saying, I don't like what these people have done. It's not a cavalier statement of, of God's anger. No, it is his settled position based on his comprehensive observation of mankind all the way down to his heart motives and the thoughts of his mind. God saw it and it displeased him. And that indignation, that indignation was mingled with amazement. Look at what it says in verse 16. He saw that there was no man. In other words, there's no man that can provide salvation He's eliminated the possibility that there's any righteous person, that there's anyone that can provide redemption, that there's anyone who is righteous. He saw that there was no man, and that can be extended throughout all history. From Adam on, there was no man, no man righteous. God is outside of time. He's eternal. He sees, he sees the, the scope of history from its beginning to end. And this is a comprehensive statement. There is no man. None. And he wondered. He was amazed that there was none to intercede. Jesus often, as he would proclaim, proclaim the kingdom and do miracles, he would stand in amazement at people's unbelief. And it is amazing, isn't it? Our darkness and our wickedness is amazing that every single day we breathe in the air that God gives us. We put our feet down on the ground that he upholds by the word of his power. We exist in the atmosphere that he created, and yet we walk contrary to him. It's amazing. God wondered. He was amazed there was no one to intercede. There's no one. Oh, the Lord can save, but it's not based on man's righteousness. There is no man, no person that can establish their righteousness before God. But point two 
The Lord does save. The Lord does save based on his own righteousness. Oh, the Lord, the Lord can save, but it won't be on your righteousness. It won't be because you've garnered favor with God. No, the Lord does save based on his own righteousness. Look at verse 16, second part. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. That's the hope. And think about what has already been expressed in these short verses, the the devastation, the despair, the complete inability of man, the indignation of God against every attempt that man makes to, to, to equip himself with righteousness. And now, oh, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. The Lord saves based on his own righteousness. Verse 17, he put on a righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. How does the Lord save based on his own righteousness? Well, first of all, the Lord arms himself to defeat the power of sin. The Lord arms himself to defeat the power of sin. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation. There's two aspects to, there's two aspects to the power of the Lord to defeat sin. The first aspect is the power of righteousness. And the second aspect is the, is the aspect of vengeance, of his judgment against sin. And you see both of those in verse 17. He's putting on his righteousness as the breastplate as he goes out to provide salvation. And he's putting on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapping himself in zeal as a cloak. Both aspects are critical. God, as he provides salvation, this is so critical for us to understand. When we get to the New Testament and find statements like God is love, that is not a statement that God changed, that God is only love apart from his justice. No, God is perfectly just in his dealing with sin, and that is the backdrop for the full force of his love to us in Jesus Christ. Look in your Bible just a couple pages over at Isaiah chapter 61, just to make this point. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, we have a portion of Scripture that Jesus quoted in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus was quoting this saying, I'm fulfilling this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why did I have us turn to this passage? Well, in verse 2, verse 2 begins to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, He stops there. He stops at the day of the Lord's favor. Why does he stop there? Because he came as the provision of redemption for mankind. The Lord's favor in providing a sacrifice for sin in Jesus Christ. The Lord's favor in providing the one and only means of salvation But there's coming a day when the full force of 
God's vengeance against sin and against sinners who are not found in Christ will come. And that's why Christ stopped in verse 2 because His first coming was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but there is still coming a day of vengeance of our God. And God in His justice, He defeated the power of sin by providing an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves in the person of Christ. He put righteousness on as a breastplate. But in doing that and in sending Christ in love to redeem us from our sins, he did not abandon justice. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for all those who are in Christ And the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, will be finally poured out on all the earth when Christ comes again. And Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 make that abundantly clear. The Lord armed Himself to defeat the power of sin. In righteousness, He went forth to provide a righteousness for those who would turn to Christ in faith. And there will be an ultimate reconciliation of his perfect character when he finally and fully deals with sin and reconciles all things to himself in Christ, things in heaven and earth. The Lord arms himself to defeat the power of sin. Look at verse 18. Not only does the Lord arm himself to defeat the power of sin and providing a righteousness and salvation for those who trust in him. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. The Lord arms himself to defeat the power of sin, but in verse 18 we see that the Lord also exercises perfect justice universally. He exercises perfect justice universally. In other words, there will be no one that will escape the justice of God. His justice will extend to the very coastlands. Going on to verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. He exercises perfect justice globally and he also makes his name great globally. They will fear his name, fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives that there is a promise that God's presence will be, will be felt around the world and everyone in one way will fear the name of the Lord. Those outside of Christ will fear the name of the Lord in terror at His coming judgment, at the surety of His justice. And those in Christ, those saved, will fear the name of the Lord as those who give themselves in a reverent allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ who is their Savior. He will make his name great globally and, and it will be, it will be a, a force that cannot in any way be, be stopped. The imagery that, that Isaiah uses here, he will come in like a rushing stream. It, it's like a, a wadi in the desert that would have a flash flood and the water would just rush down that wadi. You did not want to camp in a wadi. You'd be washed away if that rain came. The force would be overwhelming. And it's with that kind of surety that the Lord will make His name great globally. But then verse 20, and this is what we've been driving for throughout the message. The Lord appoints the Redeemer. A Redeemer will come to Zion And to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. 
What will be the ultimate fulfillment and fullness of the Lord's salvation, the Lord saving based on his own righteousness? Well, the Lord will provide someone that will purchase his people from their sin. He will pay the purchase price. He will pay what we could never pay. He will provide a perfect righteousness. A redeemer will come from Zion and he will be for those who turn from transgression. Why did John preach repent? Because the Lord said that the redeemer will be for those who repent, who return who turn from their transgression. The answer, the answer to the problem of sin is not to generate your own righteousness. The answer to your problem from sin is to turn to Christ away from your sin. To look to Christ, to look to the Redeemer in faith and repentance that he paid the redemption price that you could never pay and that he provided the righteousness that you could never provide. The Lord does save based on his own righteousness. Verse 21 is the guarantee. Look at verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. When Isaiah uttered this prophecy sometime between 739 and 686 B.C., God said, what you have said, what I've told you to say, what you have preached about man's inability to provide his righteousness, what I've told you to preach about my promise to provide my own righteousness for those who turn to me in repentance and turn to the Redeemer that I will provide, that word is sure. That word will endure forever and ever. That word will be fulfilled. It will not depart from this time forth and forevermore. And and the emphasis of this is that God, when it comes to our salvation from sin, when it comes to the fact that the Lord alone establishes salvation, He is the one who has spoken He is the one who has laid out what is necessary. He is the one who has provided the Redeemer. He is the one who has provided our righteousness in Christ. And so salvation, salvation depends on man turning to God in response to the Word of God as the Spirit of God works and draws man to himself. The Lord does save based on his own righteousness. Well, just to recapture what we've seen in this message this morning, again, the theme is that the Lord alone establishes salvation. And I know that there are so many here today that are rejoicing in that. You know that. You've turned to the Lord alone for your salvation. You've recognized that the Lord can save, but not, not on your righteousness. You, you tried. You tried to generate those works, and, and you recognized and realized the despair and the devastation that it generated as you continued to pursue your, your own salvation and your own righteousness, and, and God broke in to your desperation and magnified Christ in your eyes and you turned to him in repentance and faith. And you found indeed that the Lord does save and he does it based on his own righteousness and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You've been declared justified by faith. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's according to the word of the Lord. But I would ask, 
have all of you seen yourself as a sinner incapable of doing any good thing? Maybe you are here and listening today and, and you are trying, you're trying to establish your own righteousness. And I would just say to you, I would appeal to you based on the Word of God, that will never work. You will only continue to exponentially increase your guilt before God. You need to see that from God's Word. Isaiah's prophecy of a Redeemer is fulfilled in Christ, and to you, on the authority of God's Word, I would offer what Christ offers, redemption and righteousness in Him alone. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Allow Him to be your righteousness. Allow the payment that He made for sin on the cross to be your payment for your sin. Every word of God is sure. And many of Isaiah's prophecies were fulfilled in his own day. Go through the book and you see a number of things that happened. For example, Hezekiah being healed of his sickness. Christ came according to the word that Isaiah preached. And there are still some unfulfilled prophecies that we have from the book of Isaiah, but, guarantee, but I guarantee, because they've been stated by, the, by God, that all of those unfulfilled prophecies will be fulfilled. The day of vengeance is coming. The day of complete reconciliation of all things is coming. And so turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Turn to the Lord Jesus and Him alone to find salvation, the salvation that God alone has made. Father, we thank You for the Word today. We pray that You would work Your good will in our lives to rejoice in the fulfillment of all things in Christ. We pray for those who are outside of Christ, who are lost in their own attempts to establish themselves before You apart from Christ. Oh Lord, would You be merciful and would Your conviction draw them to Yourself, draw them to Christ. We love You, Lord. We thank You that Christ came to redeem His people from their sins. And we look forward to the day when we will be in His presence forevermore. We pray it in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.